It's June 11, 2019. This is Acacia Thompson for Brooklyn Public Library's Greenpoint Oral History Project for Our Streets, Our Stories. I'm here today on Diamond Street in Greenpoint, Brooklyn with Marcy Boyle, longtime resident and former Community Board One member. Hi, Marcy. Hi, how are you, Acacia? I'm well, thanks. So you've lived here all your life? I have lived here my whole life. I am third generation here. My grandfather came here as an infant from Ireland uh, with his parents, obviously, and um, he had he married, settled here, had 14 children, one of which was my father. And uh, my father lived his entire life here, except for his time in the war. And um, I've lived my entire life here as well, except for a couple of sad years in Albany. <laughs> what streets did you grow up? I grew up on uh, Driggs Avenue. That's where I, uh, my family was living when I was born. I lived there till I was about eight years old and moved to Houseman Street. And I was there through college. I went off to graduate school at the SUNY Albany and then came back. I had an apartment on Wither Street for about 10 years, and in 1983, I bought this house uh, here on Diamond Street, and I'm still here. All right, can you tell me a little bit about what Greenpoint was like growing up environmentally? Well, environment, first of all, we didn't understand the word environment. I don't think I ever heard it until much later. Um, it was a, a gritty industrial neighborhood. Um, it was, there were very few trees, except for maybe in McGolrick and McCarran Park. It was, there were a lot of factories, so there was a lot of industrial pollution. Um, it was an era where people were still uh, heating with coal, especially in factories, etc. So you had a lot of smog, a lot of smut. Um, when the BQE was built in the early 1950s, um, and cars did not have all the emissions controls that they had today. We lived on uh, Houseman Street right off Meeker Avenue, and I remember I, one of my chores was to dust, and I would dust, and about half an hour later there would be black soot on top of everything. But that was just normal, you just brushed it away. But it was all automotive-related, I'm sure. Um, so it was... Um, it, but that was normal. That's what life was. I mean, it was a concrete neighborhood, and that wasn't what you thought about. Nobody thought about the environment. I mean, you know, people smoked from the time they were 16, you know, and so they didn't think about, you know, illness that you would get from smoking, and they didn't worry about what was in their backyards, and they didn't worry about pollution. My father worked at the bus maintenance facility on Box Street. Uh, he was a bus maintainer. I can imagine the chemicals and whatnot he came in contact with doing that. My mother worked in various factories. Uh, she worked at Leviton. She worked in, I can't remember the name of the factory, that uh, was one of the big polluters on um, uh, Norman Avenue up by uh, Kingsland. Up there. In fact, uh, she worked at, uh, that company made, uh, I forget all the things they made, but one of the things she worked on was this um, material that they were using to uh, put on radar installations, the enemy's radar installations, this was the Cold War. And it, it came in long, thin strips, and this was highly polluted, you know, materials used to make this, but it was like this shiny ribbon-like material, and every Christmas she would bring it home. We would put it on the Christmas tree like tinsel. <laughs> so we were not aware of um, those issues. Those issues came to the fore with the environmental movement that began with Rachel Carson's uh, wonderful book, Silent Spring, and all of the movement that, that came up uh, after that in the 1960s and, and thereafter and the formation of the EPA and the Clean Air Act. and We didn't understand any of that stuff. It was just not in our consciousness. Well, do you recall about when you started to notice people in Greenpoint talking about the environment or doing anything about, well, about it? Well, when I was on the community board, um, you know, we started uh, having a lot of issues related to the uh, um, growth of the transfer stations. We just have to remember, the industry that was here, it wasn't, they, we didn't consider them, you know, big polluters that needed to be dealt with. We considered them places where people could find jobs. I mean, if you had a job, that was your big, 
you know, your big quest in my parents' generation and even for many people in my generation. So as those industries moved out, um, what the concern was, what was moving in afterwards, and it was things that didn't have high levels of jobs. It was the garbage industry, the transfer stations that brought trucks with them, and it wasn't so much about pollution as it was about uh, traffic safety, noise, the condition of the streets, and all the damage the trucks were doing. And so that became the beginning, I think, of really thinking about this environmental uh, issue as it affects our neighborhood. And we began to think about environmental justice. We had uh, Radiac uh, here, which was the one company, I think, in New York State that deals with radioactive waste. Um, we had the Newtown Creek Water Pollution Control Plant just over here, a block or two from, from where we're sitting now that was out of compliance with the federal regulations for a very long time and even with all the penalties that were being forced on the city about it, um, nothing was being done about it and you would have the odors that came from that. I mean Newtown Creek was a joke, it was just a big joke. You know? um, but I think we were conscious of it in the sense that we knew that this stuff, would, now that we were ma being made more aware of it in general, we were conscious that it was there but the environmental movement and being active about it and being um, uh, uh, proactive in, in dealing with it. it took a long time to really uh, focus itself. Some people were a little bit ahead of their time and I remember we had on the community board a very dear uh, friend of my sister Frances Cress. You may have heard about her and I corresponded with her oh, for the last 30 years until she passed away not long ago but she was aware of Newtown Creek and the issues related to it and the need to clean it up and she was prolific in writing to uh, congressmen and you know senators in the White House and everybody else about that. And nobody was paying attention to her. She was considered to be a gadfly. You know, but what does she do? Who cares about the creek? You know, it was that sort of thing. So it took a very, very long time before um, those things were focused differently because people focus on their priorities first for their living. And first it's getting a job, feeding your family, having a roof over your head. And all of these other things are, I hate to say they're a luxury, um, but the environmental justice movement, I think, shows that people who um, have to struggle in many ways for the essentials of life get abused on these other uh, issues because they can't make them a priority. But uh, that has changed now, um, and uh, I attribute a lot of that to the influence of the young people moving into the community. They are more aware because they've come from elsewhere. And they, and they're they're active and they're supportive of efforts to to clean up what's been left behind. Government is more active in that, and in general, I think all of us in the country, regardless of ways, that we're much more aware of these things today, and take the Clean Air Act, you know, for granted until people started kicking it around, you know. But I think that um, it, this is an evolving culture, and as a result of well, the GCEF grants, which have provided opportunities for people to express and be involved in uh, environmental issues has set off an environmental um, awareness in this community that is just, I think it's wonderful. I mean, I th and I think it's great and I, I just, just hope that we can continue with all of the things that I see going on. Well, can you tell me about some of those programs that you're enjoying? Well, I mean, I think I, I'm a great admirer of Lisa Bloodgood and everything that she's doing with the creek and the clean water and all of that. Um, I, of course, am involved with Audubon. I'm on the board of Audubon New York and New York City Audubon, and we were uh, instrumental in getting some grants from the Goldrick Park and the Kingsland Wildflowers. And actually, Joe Lentall um, dragged me kicking and screaming into helping uh, make a little fuss about the GCEF grants in the beginning because when it was first organized, um, 
the selection of some very wonderful people like Richie Mazur, who I love dearly. Uh, the people they had on the on the committee really were not from the area where the spill was. I grew up over the spill, as did Joe. And Joe said, you know, we've got to get you know, some grants out of the end of Greenpoint that we came from, but there were no not-for-profits up at that end who could apply for the grants, and the rules were kind of, uh, you know, I would say rigid, but, but they were set up in the traditional way that NIFWF sets up their rules, understanding that there would be groups that would understand how to do this, and it was just, you know, there weren't any. So um, I was able to get New York City Audubon and Audubon New York to apply for some of these grants and focused around McGoldrick Park, and that was really good because it actually brought some money to that end. It helped to make you know, people in the area more aware of, of the whole grant program. And I think also uh, we were able to work with NIFWIF and the Attorney General's Office, both of whom I did think did an excellent job in, in putting this program together and making it continually responsive to the community's needs. And it ferreted out enough interested people and, who were able to partner with other maybe more established groups, but to get enough grants uh, spread around the, the community in the way it should have been so that there's been a real, um, a real benefit uh, given back to the community where the spill occurred. Let's talk about McGulrick Park a little bit. Okay. You've, been in, you've been involved with uh, working on the park for some time. Right. Well, actually, I guess it's maybe only eight or nine years. I've sort of lose track of it, but uh, right, right around the same time, um, Joe said, well, as long as you're doing this, why don't you come and get involved with problems in McGoldrick Park? And I said, oh, please. But anyway, so I started going to these meetings, and um, we had a, there were a couple of people that lived over by the park that were concerned about some crime issues. And then there were other people who lived around the park that were just concerned about quality of life, and we would sit down on, we had a terrible winter that particular year. You couldn't go anywhere. It was icy and cold all the time. So Saturday morning meetings over at Park Church Co-op, which was, was still St. John's Lutheran Church at the time, seemed like a good way to spend Saturday morning. And so we'd talk and we'd talk. And uh, we decided, well, let's get involved in participatory budgeting. Let's see if we can get something going with the GSEP grants. And that's how it started. So uh, there's a loose group of us called the McGulver Park Neighborhood Alliance, um, which we've shouldered this for the last number of years, but we brought almost $10 million worth of uh, programs in between uh, city money, participatory budgeting, and the things that the councilman was able, and the borough president were able to put on top of that to finish out those projects like the playground and the GSEP money into the park. And uh, we're very proud of that. And I think we're now it's time for the younger people to take over that group because we're just you know, kind of like exhausted. <laughs> and, um, and, and that's what I, I'm a little disappointed that people don't step up in the same way that we did when I was growing up here, you stepped up because if you didn't step up, you're going to get walked all over. Now people don't step up because they think somebody else is going to do it for them. And that's not how it works in the city. Squeaky wheel gets the grease. <laughs> well, it's an interesting thing you bring up because in some ways Greenpoint is becoming a little bit more transitory of the, the community is because of uh, the gentrifying. Yes. So how, how, do, you, how do you think that uh, we get people to stay here? Well, I think, it, again, it's still part of the evolving process. I think young people come here because it's trendy, it's fun, there's lots going on here. But, you know, maybe they meet somebody and then they like the neighborhood and maybe they'll want to stay and raise their family here. And I think there's some of that happening. People are starting to nest and invest. And I think that that hopefully will give them the stake in the neighborhood. Um, that's required for people to, to, to invest their time in, in things that are longer-term benefits. So, you know, people don't like to hear about condos, but condos bring permanent residents. Um, people who are selling their houses and, you know, whatever, are selling them to young people who, are, uh, who want, want to stay here. So I hope that, um, you know, Greenpoint traditionally had a very high level of home 
uh, owner uh, owner occupancy. I remember there was a study done uh, back when I first got on the community board back in early 70s, and um, I think it said that uh, something like two-thirds of the um, buildings here were owner-occupied, which is another reason why people, you know, would be invested. Now, of course, that's a little more loosey-goosey now, but that really, if you have permanent residents here, people who own property and have a stake here, uh, you will get um, more involvement. Otherwise, people tend to be very transitory and they don't stay. So I'm hoping that people will like the place enough that they will decide to stay. Tell me a little bit about how things have changed environmentally that you've observed. Oh, well, <laughs> well, as I was just saying, you know, we were unaware really of uh, of lots that was going on. So, but I mean, a, lo a lot of these the things that cause change are things from the outside, um, being the the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act. Those are mandates that were mandated on the city uh, to clean up their act. Um, we were able to, on the community board, have the, um, uh, I forget now what it's called, was the fair share plan related to uh, transportation stations, uh, transfer, transfer stations, um, passed about, I guess that's 15 years or so ago now. And now I hear people in Manhattan screaming because, you know, they're getting a transfer station. <laughs> I said, it's your garbage, you know. But I think so there are less transfer stations. There's still, we have our share. Maybe we still have a little bit more than our share, but there's a lot less, and that's not a growth industry. The waterfront where all this uh, property that was zoned M3 that could only bring in heavy industry um, is now been changed for residential development and that heavy industry is not coming anymore anyway. So there's been a reclamation of land that was used in the past for heavy industry that's been reclaimed for use as uh, recreation or residential or, you know, things, open space or whatever. That's been a big change. Um, Everybody likes to talk about the tree-lined streets of Greenpoint, but there were no tree-lined streets in Greenpoint um, even as far up into the mid-90s. We had some trees, but we actually were the least treed community district per capita uh, under a Parks Department study. And then the Asian beetle showed up, and the Asian beetle resulted in us taking virtually all the trees except the trees in McGolrick Park. Uh, the the uh, um, London Plains were not a host species, thank God for that. And I chaired that committee on the community board, and that was a pretty intense uh, period because even backyard trees, such as they were, had to be taken because we had so few people were very protective of them. But we lost all of those trees, and uh, the committee that we were involved in did a very um, intensive job of trying to get homeowners to accept the new trees that the U.S. Forest Service provided the funding for. And um, they were planted, and now they were all about 22, 23 years old, do the math on this, like the one in front of my house, which is a beautiful tree, and the result of that, and you see it everywhere, and now it's very pronounced that these trees are 20 years old, they're really mature at this point. You go up and down the streets of Brooklyn this time of year, and it is a tree-lined wonder, and it's that's a big change in the environment. The trees bring cleanliness, they bring birds, <laughs> they bring shade, they bring lots of you know wonderful things. Uh, that really change the, the your perception of your environment as well as your actual environment. Oh, well, is there anything else you'd like to say about Greenpoint? Well, I could talk forever about Greenpoint. Um, well, we're talking specifically about the environment. Um, I think that um, some of the changes that that have occurred have been very, very positive. Um, there's been a lot of jobs created through the uh, the um, television and movie industry, which has also been key, I think, to, to stabilizing the area because a lot of the industrial area uh, properties that 
um, were left abandoned have been purchased and reused for those purposes as opposed to lying there fallow. So there's a lot, a lot of jobs connected with that. The jobs bring the restaurants, they bring you know, other types of uh, cultural and amenity uh, uses. Um, and those things bring more people. So it's, we're much more crowded than we were before. It's, I think it's much more densely populated here in Greenpoint than it was before, which leads to overcrowding in the subways. We always had the worst subway. We still have the worst subway, which is the G train. It doesn't go anywhere. But um, I'm, you know, hopefully the increase in the number of people will bring a greater um, demand for, um, you know, a successful demand for improvement in, in service. Schools, of course, we had a full network of Catholic schools here when I was growing up in addition to the public schools. Catholic schools, other than St. Stan's, are really out of business, and we don't have any new public schools either. So, um, and that's, that's typical, I think, in a lot of cities uh, where you have gentrification and growth that the educational system has lagged way behind it and is a real obstacle to, um, to progress, and something needs to be done about that. <laughs> and so you're going to be moving soon to the waterfront. Are you excited for a new? Yes, it's a sort there? of a change. I'm getting tired of going up and down the stairs. It's the only exercise I get, but <laughs> but it's it's time to uh, you know to, to simplify my 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 life and spend. I'm going to spend the winters in a warmer place. I bought a house in Florida, but um, I'm so involved in New York and so many different things. I'll be back here most most of the time. But I wanted to simplify my life at this point and you know not have to worry about the garden and the fuel and the shoveling and the and all of the things that, that that go with it. So I'm, but I'm not leaving the zip code. <laughs> right. Well, before we go, what kind of things have you been working on? It seems like you've been an activist for your community for a long mm-hmm. time, and you've been working on a lot of different issues. Is there anything that you have been working on lately that you're that you're interested and passionate about? Well, I, you know, I've sort of tried to withdraw a little bit uh, from it because I think younger people need, as I said, need to take over responsibility for that. So I'm not really that involved in too much other than the McGolrick Park stuff, which we're sort of petering out with. But I am involved with the Audubon New York and New York City Audubon. And I'm more interested in um, in that type of thing now, bringing that level of, of education and enjoyment about nature um, into urban areas. And I mean, you know, one of the things that New York City Audubon particularly is interested in, because all of our organizations now are interested in EDI, you know, it, equity, diversity, and inclusion, inclusiveness um, to bring uh, nature education out of the elite that birding has always seemed to be and, and get people to appreciate and understand more because if you understand and value birds, you will understand and value your environment and you will be an activist for your environment because all these things go together. You know, People, the, the habitat and the birds, we're all intertwined in this together. And um, we're hoping to, you know, be able to, to spread that word and that bring those opportunities um, to people in urban communities as well, because there there are birds everywhere. You can hear them now as we sit in the backyard. <laughs> um, but people see cardinals in their backyards. They see pigeons. Pigeons are birds. You know, you there are hawks. I have a hawk that visits this tree all winter long here, and uh, you know, it's just it's just like wild kingdom out here. <laughs> and it's uh, you know, I think it's important to bring that that. Uh, those those things to urban areas as well and not let them just be focused in Central Park. Oh, thank you for your story, Marcy. You're welcome.